Let me ask you a simple question. I think it's simple. You probably have an answer. What do you expect God should do? What do you expect from God? From day to day, from life episodes. What do you expect God should be doing in your life? Now, on a weekly basis, I encounter people who view life from this very perspective. Did God do what I thought he should do? Did God do for me what I believed was what he should be doing? For many people, I think God is persistently on trial. They're always examining whether or not God did what they believed God should do. In fact, they measure the credibility of God based on their own expectations. For many people, maybe us, we determine how faithful we are going to be to God based on how faithful we think God was to us. So we think this way. If God was just a little faithful to me, then I will be just a bit faithful to him. And if God was really faithful to me, well then I'll consider being faithful to him. And we measure our life based on who we think God is or how we think God treated us. In fact, some people believe that God exists or doesn't exist based on whether or not God fulfilled their expectations. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I don't believe God exists because God has not done this or that. Or when there was a bad diagnosis, God did not heal. Or when there was a poor circumstance, God did not come through for me. And so they actually determine whether or not God exists based on their own perspective of God, their expectations of God. But have you ever considered God's expectations of you? You know, to, to, to live a life where we are putting God on trial would be the equivalent of uh, looking into a court scene and seeing the person who is being tried suddenly take the gavel from the judge and strip him of his robe and say, hold it. I'm in charge now. Judge, you are going to be tried instead. That's what we do often to God. Many people do. And sometimes we do it unknowingly. But we do. Have you ever considered, on the other hand, God's expectations of you? God does have expectations of his creation. He has, in particular, expectations of those who profess Christ, those people who say, yes, I'm a Christian. The truth is, is that we cannot put God on trial, though we often try. And so this morning, I want to delve into the relationship of the Christian and God's expectations. God has great expectations. And I want you to see, of the many, just two, just two, Two expectations that God has of his children. I also want you to see, though, as we talk about these things, that the Christian life is not about rule keeping, and if you keep the rules, God pats you in the back and gives you a pass. No, no. We're talking about the heart. We're not talking about mechanically doing right things. We're talking about where's your heart? Where's your heart? Are you devoted to him? Do you, do you honor God because it's in your heart? Or is it because you simply, well, you like doing the right thing? 
you know, as a child, I was of the five, the one who did always the right thing. I knew exactly what my parents wanted. And I always, more times yes than no, did exactly what my parents wanted. Until this day, my mother reminds all the others, he was the good son. <laughs> and I still think that they don't appreciate it. And I must admit, I was the good son. But you see, I was often the good son, not because I was devoted to my parents, but because I knew what would happen if I didn't. It's something my brother never caught on. And what a difference, though, right? I mean, the results are the same. There was harmony in the home to the degree that I could bring that about. But there's a great difference between simply doing things, the right things, for my advantage versus doing the right things because of my heart devotion to my parents. And in our case this morning, our heart devotion to God. Big difference. The Lord does not simply want our hands to do the right thing. He wants our hearts to move our hands to do the right thing. And so this morning we are going to take a look at the relationship of the Christian to the law of God. And we're going to begin with this, the law and the Christian. The law and the Christian. I think you know this, if not you will. The Old Testament law was intended to be a mirror a mirror for the people of God. The Old Testament law was not intended to save anybody. People who kept the law or tried to keep the law were not going to be saved, but rather the law was designed for them to look at the law and say, hold it, I'm a lawbreaker. There was no way they were going to keep all of those laws. There were so many laws, intricate laws, designed to show people that you are a sinner. Hundreds of laws, 600 plus. And then the Jews added to those laws through their oral tradition. And then they added even more laws in the Talmud. But look at what Romans chapter 7 verse 7 tells us about the law being a mirror to us. This is how Romans 7 7 reads. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what was what coveting was if the law had not said do not covet I'll equate it to a speed limit on a road this road here I believe is 45 miles an hour but unless there's a placard that says 45 miles an hour unless there's a law that limits my speed I would never know that I'm breaking the code And so when the police officer pulls me over for speeding, he could say, well, that's the law. And by looking at the law, you know that you are a lawbreaker when you go beyond that speed limit. And that's exactly what the law of God does. It's a mirror that shows us that we are sinners. There's no way we could keep those laws. The law shows us that we have not only a propensity to do what is wrong, but we also have the ability to do what is wrong. It points to the sinfulness of our hearts, not to our righteousness. Not at all. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he says this. He says, so we, quote, have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is going to be justified. In that same book, chapter 3, verse 11, he writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by keeping the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Life, life in your soul, eternal life, does not come by keeping the law. You can't do it. We cannot. It comes by placing your faith in Christ. Keep in mind, my friends, that Christ came not to abolish all those laws in the Old Testament, but rather what we see in the scriptures in Matthew 5, 17, is that Christ came to fulfill the law. In other words, he came to complete the, the, the law, the Old Testament law. Um, the, the Old Testament law not only pointed to Jesus Christ, but it also identifies who the Savior is going to be. The, the law actually introduces us to the Savior after having told us that we need a Savior. Sinners need a Savior. And the law shows us that. Now Christ has come, and what we see in the text is that he has fulfilled the law. In other words, the purpose of the law was found in Jesus Christ. It showed us, shows us that we are sinners. It shows us that we need a Savior. And now it points us to the Savior. However, even though the law has been fulfilled, the Christian life still has rules. Quite different in many ways from the laws of the Old Testament, but the Christian life still has rules. God still has expectations of us. There's a term that refers to people who don't believe what I just told you. They're called, it's a big word, antinomianists. In other words, they are against the law. Antinomianists. And, and these are Christians who say that there are no rules for the Christian life because you are saved by grace. And so you can live any way you want and God will still forgive you. And will he forgive you all your sins? Yes, he will. Therefore, they say, we can live any way we want. They are antinomianists. There's no rules that are going to burden them, no rules that are going to hinder how they live. Some people outright believe this way, and some people just live as if they believe this way. Maybe, I would assume you have, seen graffiti markings of an A with a circle. And we, we know that is the symbol for anarchy. Anarchy is very much alive in our culture today. Anarchy is a state of society, in society in which there is no government, there is no law, uh, and of course it brings about political disorder, it brings about social disorder. That's the goal of anarchy. Anarchy says, I don't have to follow any rules whatsoever. I can do as I please. And Dr. Al Mohler writes, have you ever wondered why anarchists have leaders? <laughs> and they do. I knew a young man who became an anarchist. He grew up in a good Christian home. He became a bank teller. And to identify with anarchy, he got on his wrist a tattoo of a circle A. I thought it was kind of alarming, especially since he was handling my money. He was a bank teller. The two just don't go together. Anarchy, my money in your hands. I don't know about that. 
he eventually began to change his way of thinking because he saw that where there are no rules, there's no advantage to him. Uh, the anarchist punk band, Chumbawamba, huh, more than just a few years ago now, released a song that maybe you remember. It's a great party song for those of you who are partiers. Uh, the words say, I-, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. And just keeps repeating those. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. And they are an anarchist band. And the truth is that by design, by the very essence of anarchy, if anarchy rules, eventually you are going to get knocked down and you are not going to get back up again. That's the goal of anarchy. You're not. Antinomianists, Christians who believe that there are no expectations, that you can live any way you want, are essentially spiritual anarchists. I live as I please, but keep this in mind. You will get up a few times, but eventually you're going to be knocked down. You're going to be spiritually flat, and you're not getting up again. The Bible gives to us rules to live by, not because God is a curmudgeon, but because God knows what is best for us. He does not want us to live in a spiritual anarchy. He wants us to flourish. He wants the people around us to flourish because of us. And so he gives us rules that will not only flourish us, rules that will bless him, rules that will reflect well on God, rules, expectations that say, my heart belongs to you. And there are various expectations. Again, this morning we're speaking of just two. Keep in mind that God, by saving you, has not abandoned you to your whims and your preferences. God has not said, I save your soul, now go live as you please. (laughs) Not that at all. Rather, God continues to bless who? He continues to bless those who live within the parameters that he has established. And by the way, those parameters are good, and they are wide. They are good. Now let me read to you from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Reminds us very much so that there are parameters. Here is the Apostle Paul uh, speaking about himself. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then he answers his own question. He says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Our response should be to consecrate our lives out of love to God, out of worship, out of a sense of gratitude for what he has done for us. We should respond by saying, yes, Lord, I will obey you. Isn't that what we expect of our children? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a passage we looked at a few weeks ago. It reads this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And all this to say, my friends, is that we are not saved by being good. We are saved by grace. 
But obedience to God is important in a believer's life. And, and as I said earlier, there are various expectations we can look at and see. What, what does the Lord want of me? But this morning I want to emphasize just two, just two. Two things that God expects of the Christian life. And here they are. One is baptism, and the other is the Lord's Supper. Are you surprised? Of all the expectations I could have chosen, I chose those two. And the reason I chose those two is because these are the initial steps of the Christian life. And they are expectations that God has for us. Both of these, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are actually testimonies of God's working in your soul, in your life. Christians declare their position in Christ through these ordinances. Sometimes they're referred to as sacraments. Sometimes they're referred to as ordinances. An ordinance is simply an order from God. God said, do this. And they are designed to declare an outward sign of what God has done in me previously. When I come to the waters of baptism, when I sit at the Lord's Supper, I am saying God has done something to me. And I am telling you now that God has done something to me, in me. He's changed me. He's given me new life. He's become my Savior. I'm not perfect, but he's, he's, he's working on me. He's changing me. Baptism is just that testimony. And then it's followed up with the Lord's Supper. Uh, it points back to an act of God on my behalf. Baptism, as well as the Lord's Supper, are, are also ways in which we actually strengthen our faith. How, how does that happen? Well, as you come to a point in your life where you are being baptized, and then afterwards you join regularly in the Lord's Supper, you are drawing yourself to worship God. And there you are reflecting, and there you are confessing, there you are joining with the people of God. And this actually strengthens your faith. It is an important ordinance, baptism, as is the Lord's Supper. God only gave us two, but he did give us two. And he expects us to abide by them. In fact, both of them symbolize the greatest event ever in history. That God would come and redeem a sinner like me. It points not only to his redeeming work, but it also points to the fact that he died and he resurrected. That's what last Sunday was all about. He's resurrected. And when I come to the waters of baptism, when I come to the Lord's table, I am declaring Jesus lives. He died for me, but he lives today. And I'm also declaring he's coming back for his church, for his children, for his own. Baptism does not wash your sins away. The Lord's Supper will not add years to your life. I know some people think it will. If I take from this cup, I'm going to be blessed and my disease is going to go away. No. no. 
And some people think that if they are baptized, their sins are going to be washed away. In fact, there's, there, there's a pretty uh, um, fun to listen uh, country song by Randy Travis, who does profess Christ, but he's got poor theology here. The, the song is called Pray for the Fish. And he believes that he's such a sinner that now he's being baptized, and so all his sins are going to wash away, and it's going to pollute the river, and the fish are going to die. So the song is about pray for the fish. Enjoyable song, bad theology. No. Baptism says, here I stand before you, and I declare that he has forgiven me and washed away my sins. And here I am at the Lord's table remembering what he has done for me. And in doing so, I not only identify with Christ, but I identify with the people of Christ, his church. You see why it's important? Both of these ordinances, baptism and the supper, are ceremonies. They're ceremonies that portray the beginning and then the continuing life of the individual Christian. They say, I am now devoted to God, whereas before I was not. One day I would like to be perfectly devoted to God, but for now, I am devoted to God through Jesus Christ. And baptism and the Lord's Supper is actually commanded explicitly in the New Testament. I remember one woman who said to me, I don't need to prove to anybody that I'm a Christian. I said, well, that's true, you don't. But you do. Because the word of God is very clear that if you believe, be baptized. Consider the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, here we have an ordinance for anybody who's a serious-minded Christian. We have these elements that are not literally the body of Christ. Listen, we are not consuming the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That would be cannibalism. We are not cannibals. What we are, however, consuming is something more than a symbol. A neon light is a symbol. That way, that way, that way. No. It's more than just a a symbol. What we have in the Lord's Supper are representatives of Jesus Christ. Christ is not here, but these represent him. Like an ambassador represents the president. The president can't be there, so he sends his ambassador who will speak on behalf. And whatever the ambassador says is as if the president spoke. And the Lord's Supper, the elements in the Lord's Supper is just that. It comes with the backing of Christ himself. It is the representative of Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ. And baptism actually symbolizes the death and, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It symbolizes also that I have died to myself, therefore I'm immersed, I'm washed of my sin, and it represents that I have come up as a new person. It doesn't make me a new person. It's simply saying, look, I am a new person. I'm not who I used to be. In some cases, it is drastic. Some of you have testimonies, stories of your past where you hope your children never know. And God has transformed you radically. And then there are those of you who are like me who are 
always a nice person, but always a nice sinner. And God saved your soul, and he gave you new life. And baptism is for you as well. It doesn't have to be some sensational experience, but rather the experience of new life in Christ. It symbolizes the fact that you've been forgiven of your sins. Your sins are washed away. Uh, Let me read to you from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Here God describes what he does, not through baptism, but through salvation. Baptism is saying, I have been saved in Christ. Look at what Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 25, reads. God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a feeling heart. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Baptism says, that was me. You've done that for me. And the Lord's Supper says, after baptism, you keep doing that for me. See, the Lord's Supper has a threefold purpose. It demonstrates our fellowship with God. It demonstrates, number two, our fellowship with one another who are in Christ. And then it strengthens me in my faith. As I look at my God, I look at the people of God, I consider who he is, what he has done, and my strength and my faith is bolstered. You know, we're impacted by the world all week long, day in and day out. How good it is to be able to come away from all that and focus on what Christ has done and who he is. And finally, after a week of being in this world, to simply concentrate on something more important, my soul, my Christ. And again, it's required of the believer. And and by the way, that's why we teach believer's baptism. Believer's baptism says, I believe, therefore I'm baptized. There are those who are baptized, teach that you ought to be baptized, and then one day you believe. Uh, But no, what we see in the scriptures, it says, believe and be baptized, not be baptized and believe. Take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts chapter 2. This is the very beginning of the New Testament church. Peter's preaching, and at the end of his sermon, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is repent and be baptized. And, and it's not that baptism will save your soul, no. But what you see there is that the two are so intricately intertwined that you can't separate one from the other. If I'm a repenting, believing individual, then I should be a baptized individual. Acts chapter 8, if you move a little further to the right... In the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 36, it reads this way. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, 
look, here is some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? It's a great question. Why shouldn't I be baptized? This man was eagerly seeking the sign which said, look, I believe I'm in Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What sign must I give to say I'm a believer? Be baptized. Saving faith naturally is followed by this demonstration of faith, which is baptism. Now, there are those, in particular Catholicism, which will teach quite differently, and they believe that it's a sacrament, that you are baptized in order to save your soul, and it's one of the means by which your soul will be saved. And so, of course, they would rather baptize an infant in order to guarantee salvation, even at an early age. We don't see that in the Scriptures. You don't see that in the Book of Acts. You don't see that anywhere in the Scriptures. However, it has become the practice of many. And in that case, they would say that salvation is something yours to lose. Through baptism you have it, through your sin you can lose it. That's not what we see in the scriptures. Take a look, take a read for yourself. What we see is people believing, repenting, being baptized, taking the Lord's Supper. That's what we see. And that's what we should follow. Now, now regarding the Lord's Supper, uh, there's a passage we read every month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. I just want to underscore verse 25 for you. I repeat it every month. It, it reads this way. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now note here that it does not say, if you do this. But whenever you do this, in other words, it is expected that having been baptized, you will participate in the Lord's Supper. If you have not been baptized, it's something you need to be praying about. Like the eunuch in chapter 8 of Acts, you should be asking the question, what keeps me from being baptized? If you have been redeemed by Christ, if you profess that he is your Lord and Savior, and the the, the Bible is as clear as it can possibly be, believe and be baptized, and then participate in the Lord's Supper. If you have not made this public profession of faith, neither should you be taking the Lord's Supper, because one is based off the other. Uh, you shouldn't try to switch them around. I've met too many people who would love to take the Lord's Supper but refuse to be baptized. And you have to ask yourself, why would you? Why would you? Why take the order of the Scriptures and reverse it? Why do one and not the other? What prevents you from being baptized? He does wait for your obedient response. Now, in closing, let me make one last point. One last sort of long point but you're not surprised. (laughs) Let me share with you five things you should know about the baptized Christian. Five things you should know about the baptized Christian. And here's the first one. Baptized Christians do sin. They do. You're sitting next to one. Or maybe in front of you. Or maybe looking at one. Baptized Christians do sin. Uh, we see it in, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I read it to you earlier. 1 John 1.8 reads this way. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We do sin. Here's number two. Baptized Christians want to obey God. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I want to do what is right. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that all the rest of creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly. We are part of creation and we actually groan within ourselves due to our own sin, desiring to be free from it, the corruption of this flesh, but unable. We want to obey God. Here's number three. Baptized Christians can obey God. Again, Romans chapter 6, this time verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. It reads this way. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he ends, that is what some of you were. Don't go back to it. They can obey. Here's number four. Baptized Christians do obey God. Not perfectly, as we just saw, but we do. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. One more, Ezekiel 36, verse 27. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. One writer said that baptism and the Lord's Supper are visual parables. Stories, visual ways of telling a story of what Christ has done in me. And here's number five. Baptized Christians may very well be misunderstood by the world. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, we're told this. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. How often the world is surprised that we won't join in their sin. Although maybe in the past we did, but not anymore. And the result is they don't say, oh, I'm so glad for you. I'm so glad you're not who you used to be. No, they, they, they malign you. They ridicule you. They misunderstand you. Why? Because you're holding up the standard of God with your life, or at least you're trying. Uh, some will think you're ridiculous. They'll look at you as if you were strange. Uh, many will mock you. People will set you aside, all because you want to do what is right before the Lord. They'll say, you've joined the cult. You're too religious. Oh, this is extreme. They'll say things like, oh, that's just too stringent. Nobody can live like that. 
and then they'll accuse you. But when you're trying to be loyal to Christ, they'll accuse you of being disloyal to them. That's the world we live in. Until, of course, they hear the gospel and they come to Christ. And now they begin to understand. 2 Corinthians 4.4 reads this way. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the world we live in. So my friends, in closing here, let me just say that the Christian is saved by grace, but we are guided by the law of God. And part of the law of God for the New Testament church is this. Be baptized. Participate in the Lord's Supper. Great expectations for all of us. So in that obedience, you are going to find the greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction for your soul. You will. And and it will be an ongoing satisfaction. It's not going to be something temporal, not something that's going to leave your flesh craving. But he will satisfy you. And, And it will be satisfying so that you will walk away from God's table full. You will be satisfied. And it will be rewarding so that your hope in eternity is going to be fortified. Through these professions of faith, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we bolster our understanding that yes, this life is temporary, but one day I'm going to live in eternity with my Savior. We need these visual parables to remind ourselves of the things we know to be true, and at times we begin to doubt. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. I wish I could say today we were going to take the Lord's Supper. (laughs) But we will soon. And I look forward to joining around the table with you. I'm looking forward to those who will be baptized this spring. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, we are grateful because you do expect things of us. That you give us the strength to be able to accomplish And we thank you, Lord, that it is not through our deeds that we come to salvation. But we thank you, Lord, that it is through our deeds that we display our heart's devotion to you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your mercy towards us. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. We pray, O Lord, that each one of us would know the joy of living a life that is right before you. We pray these things in your holy name, O Christ. Amen.